The podcast you're about to listen to is part of the Professional Casual Network. To find more podcasts like this, please check out professionalcasual.com. The Professional Casual Network has gear. Check out teespring.com slash store slash professional casual for fresh new swag. A huge shout out to our sponsor, beardeddragongames.online. Pick up all your local game store goodness from Magic the Gathering, Dungeons & Dragons, Pathfinder, or Wafurp 4th Edition, as well as Terrain, Paints, board games, comics, and more. Make sure to use code ProfessionalCasual at checkout for free domestic shipping or PCME10 for 10% off your total order at beardeddragongames.online. Also, a special thanks to Built Bar for sponsoring the show. To get 10% off your order and to help support the show, use code ProfessionalCasual at checkout or use the link in the show notes. Okay, so make sure you stop me if you've heard this one. My son once asked, hey, dad, can I eat the cake in the fridge? And I told him, sure, but I bet the dining room table would be a lot more comfortable. Fantastic. gentlemen this is your host d to the day dr d reaching out through the supervision free source of infinity interfacing i am joined today by the legendary the legendary devon from the meta chemistry podcast what is it like living in a post krug world my man that is a pretty significant honorific that i'm not sure i'm deserving of but thank you <laughs> uh, but yeah it's been it's been good we're very very hot off the heels of the krug um and yeah, mostly uh, I was able to get in another game of reinforcements, just continuing to try and parse through the rules, try and get some some practical knowledge on that. And so, yeah, so I guess I've had one game of Infinity since the Krug. And yeah, it's it's definitely a different style of game for sure. It's it's fun, but it's challenging in its own its own capacity. I will say every game I think I've lost. No, I've, I got a tie on my first one against Brady. The reinforcement concept is it's interesting because I think every time I've played it, maybe I wasn't in the right mind space because every time I've gone, it was like always after like a work day. And I, I think it's just like it was a whole nother thing to like learn. I think it's a super fascinating way to play the game. I just haven't had I just haven't had it click yet. You know what I mean? Sure. Like I've totally. Played it and I've like I've kind of like I know what the move I know how to do it. But then I'm just like, uh, I just didn't click. I just didn't. I just what I tried to do didn't work. And this was the O12 ones, of course, which their sure. reinforcement table is. It doesn't it's have interesting. It doesn't have Apaches. <laughs> There's that, right? Yeah, it's it's so strange for O12 in particular. It feels like there's a fairly significant amount of overlap with the tools that are already available, um, especially so if you're playing vanilla. But even in Starmada, I feel like a lot of the units kind of do things you already can do. And then some factions are just wildly different. Like it's it's been a trip playing a couple games with OSS and the plethora of new tack bots available. So especially those Dewans. I've been called Dewan. Yeah, Dewan tack bots are 
really cool. It's just such a such a great gap fill for OSS in particular. Like that type of profile may have some utility for a vanilla or a phalanx reinforcement game, but OSS just doesn't have any tools that are in that ballpark. Like they just have nothing that fills that role. So that's been really interesting and I really enjoyed that. Can't wait to get some models for those. Yeah, that's honestly the most exciting part. They just recently showed the Yu Jing ones, and they look uh, incredible. Yeah, they have painted models at Nova that I saw some pictures of earlier today. Uh, they look great. Just looking at them, it makes me want to pick up a pack just for some cyberpunk RPG models. Like, I don't really play Jixing at all. I have some Jixing models, but I could say I have a lot of models that I don't really play. <laughs> Not that that would resonate with anyone here, I'm sure. I was just about to say, I'm sure, I'm sure a few people here follow that sentiment. All right, so hey, today on Arachne, instead of just talking about a little segue about reinforcements and the amazing things that are available in our on those new tables, uh, we're going to be discussing how to step up your game from being one of the rest and becoming the best, if you know what I'm saying. But first, I got to talk about some. <laughs> Arachne is a part of the Professional Casual Network. If you would like to support the network, please sign up for our Patreon or purchase some hot swag at streamlabs.com, Professional Casual Network 1. I would also like to say we did get the shirts available. Everybody that has bought them says they're great. I've seen them in the wild. I've seen them at the local area that we play at and all that. They're amazing. I absolutely love them. Absolutely, absolutely love them. We are also sponsored by Frontline Gaming and would love it if you use the link in the show notes to go purchase your tickets for any of the events coming up since it helps us out a whole bunch. The next event is, of course, SoCal Open on October 21st, 22nd. As far as I'm aware, there are no Infinity events there, so if you go there, you're probably playing a different game. If we get the community big enough, they're going to have to have Infinity events at these things. So, you know, smash that like button, subscribe in the comments down below or whatever it is that people say, content created things. I personally am sponsored by Monument Hobbies. I always forget to mention that because I'm dumb. But if you can use the code Professional Casual at checkout, you get a sweet discount and it really helps out the channel. And of course, who doesn't love Monument Hobbies paint? I'm absolutely addicted to it. It's delicious. I don't recommend you eat it. But if you do, <laughs> uh, just en- just enjoy, you know, if you're just one of those kinds of people. And of course, we can never forget our sponsor, Mr. Laser at mrlaser.square.site. So again, I would like to illustrate the fact that we have Devin. Devin is, I guess he's sort of the front man of Medichem currently ever since the old host. I don't know. He just like got interested in other things. I don't know if he can like elucidate or if you want to talk about that at all, but yeah, what's going on? man? Sure. Uh, yeah. So I guess I am co-host and discussion facilitator perhaps. So uh, I, I definitely wouldn't claim to, to run the show. Uh, both Azoka and Ian are great partners to have, and I couldn't do it without them. Yeah, um, as far as Andrew goes, I know Andrew has had, um, like, some things have been work-related and other uh, personal life events coming up uh, that he's actually still dealing with. We were He was able to make it out to the Krug, which is the first time I've seen him play Infinity in the last six or eight months. It was It was good to see him, but yeah, I think that, you know, He's just dealing with life as it comes for all of us in one way or another. Is he still doing the weightlifting stuff? I believe so. Yeah, pretty sure he's still powerlifting. Good for him. Whenever people come into, and and by the way, just to go back and say, I absolutely love you guys. You guys are like, personally, the power trio to me is always going to be Rush. I'm sure there's only a few people that are actually going to get that reference, but you guys are definitely a great team. I'm always excited whenever an episode comes out and I'm going to hopefully learn something. That's awesome. Well, thank you. It's definitely, it's one of those podcasts where when it's on my list, I just skip everything else. (laughs) Well, thanks. 
that's super nice to hear. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. So when people come on to Arachne for these, I guess you can mm-hmm. call this sort of like an interview episode. I always love my most, sure. this is proper English, my most favorite part of meeting new people or just knowing people in this hobby spaces, what is the origin? What is your nerd origin story? So like, where did you get started? Was it D&D, Legos? Let's see. I would say in terms of like a gaming history, I would say that that started probably beginning or early high school for me. I think as far as miniature wargaming, because that's probably the easiest segue, uh, was catching a demo game at a games workshop for 40K. This would have been... Battle from Crag, 4th edition, I think that was. So yeah, so I started with that, uh, played a handful of armies, quickly jumped into Warhammer Fantasy Battles, and I've played just kind of a bunch of miniature games from there. And there are still miniature games that I am either jumping into or other things I like to do. But Infinity became my primary miniatures game once I started playing that. About 2009, uh, right around there, is it's when Human Sphere N2 came out, because that's when Aleph came out. And that is my happy place, that is my favorite favorite faction and I still play them even today. I mean, I jump around because I feel like it takes a far more disciplined person than me to stick to one faction for that length of time. Yeah. Trust me. I'm not, you get no condolences from me on that. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, I mean, I've played a bunch of miniature games and uh, to your point previously, I I do a lot of role-playing games. Like I've been part of some active RPG more or less the, without more than a, probably a six month break over the last 15 years or so and various groups like usually I think right now I'm at like two and a half RPGs a week we've got one semi-monthly game and two weekly games so (laughs) definitely significant for me mad jealous because I can't seem to get groups to last longer than you know (laughs) you get them going you get like six sessions in and then the you know the attention starts to wane and yada yada yeah I'm sure a lot of people out here listening to this can say something about that absolutely so what game system do you play out of curiosity um, well, our, uh, let's see, I think perhaps now, but like all of them are currently on fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, but our Friday game and our Wednesday game jump around pretty regularly. In fact, we just, we just decided to move back to long form content, but something we've been doing with the Friday game that I host at my place is that we basically check in with whoever is interested in running a game. They'll pick a system, we'll run it for, we'll run whatever the adventure, the starter module is, or if they have some written content. So we played, over the last six months maybe, we've played Cyberpunk Red, Roll for Shoes, played The One Ring, we played Avatar Legends, Age of Sigmar Soulbound, and a couple others that I'm probably forgetting. But yeah, so we've been jumping around a lot, which is fun, because you get to explore things that are very different, and you get to see mechanics that just don't exist in other games. And in fact, like I'm so we're switching to, like I said, some more long-form content now, and I'll be running that. This will be a Dungeons & Dragons game set in the world of Ravnica, introducing some homebrew rules inspired by some of the systems that we've played, just to kind of like limit some of the uninteractivity of certain things. Like like from Soulbound, you have a mortally wounded, so even while you're effectively at 0 HP equivalent, you can still act while you're making death saves. So I'm implementing a version of that just to make it so everyone continues to be engaged throughout and things like that. Good idea. And I will say something I have learned, especially like in the sports world, being, you know, being an actual doctor, right? Something that a lot of athletes do. And I think some, I think a lot of it applies to nerddom as well. You know, especially if you want to like improve on your infinity game is sometimes mm-hmm. you have to play other games to get like elaborate mindset. You know, <laughs> you can turn that intelligence into wisdom. You know what I mean? Yeah, expands perspective. Right. So it's like it's kind of interesting being able, especially with miniature games, right? 
So like if definitely you play like I, another game I really love is Bushido, right? Another very mm-hmm. small skirmish based game. Right. Playing games like that definitely help you stop getting. I don't even say railroaded per se, but you definitely can see you get a wider perspective for the mm-hmm. situations you might find yourself in. Do you, do you find that to be the case with you? I think so, at least in so much that different games that focus on other aspects can kind of help. It can kind of help expand how you think about a given strategy is not quite the right word I'm thinking of, but let's say, um, say Shatterpoint is very movement intensive. Like where you place miniatures is of utmost importance. Being able to move your opponent's miniatures is a very significant part of the game. In some ways, you know, you can take that sort of information away where, okay, here's some interesting things like that I didn't think about because of how movement works in this system. Some of these things can apply to other games like Infinity where, okay, if I take some of these concepts, it might help me think about how I view verticality and terrain. Or line of sight's not a great example with that game, but <laughs> but movement, I think, you know, in that particular instance. And I think you can take similar lessons from other games. And if you want to learn more about Shatterpoint, especially, uh, Jesse and Amon from Hello There. Me and Jesse are tight as peanut butter and jelly. So, I mean, it's a great podcast. If you need other, if you're looking for other nerd content to consume, definitely recommend them. It's a great show. And yes, 100% movement in that game is king. You are put in the wrong spot. I think the one thing, maybe even a part of Infinity that they could even expand on a little bit is there's I don't think there's any case of you being able to move an opponent's model other than just putting them in the sky. No, I don't believe so. I don't think there's any way other than Total well control tags. You can do that. Sure. I was thinking that one of the that you might be able to Kazi back, but no, that's only friendlies anyway. So yeah, I mean you could make a case for neutral civilians when you civvy back, but that's as close as you can get. Not enemy models. I mean you can't force push somebody off a building for sure. <laughs> Also, things die much faster. Yeah, right. <laughs> Infinity of all the games. Yeah, oh, like the, <laughs> that is the one nice thing about Shatterpoint is you get to watch your models die a little bit slower than you do in Infinity. Mm-hmm. In this game just get mowed down. It's true. Uh, God. But anyway, so I, I guess the, the another question I, I got to ask because I, I did ask a couple of people like, what do what do you want to ask Devin? And they said, how did you get involved with metachemistry in general? I remember you used to be like the IT guy. Yeah, yeah. So I used to be in, uh, I used to do a lot of IT work for a fair amount of my professional career. Yeah, I was brought in not at the start of the resurgence of metachemistry, but just a little bit after. I think I think I started on episode three or four-ish, something like that. So Nate wanted to uh, revive the podcast. And he felt that it would be a fun project. It was also mid to late pandemic quarantines. So I think that some of it, of course, was looking for things to do that didn't require going out. So he reached out to uh, Ian and to Andrew, at least from his uh, his retelling of it, is that he intended to have me on, but forgot to reach out to me. <laughs> so, uh, and then when he remembered, then I joined. And so, yeah, it seemed like a great way to, to interact with the game on another level, a nice outlet for information, because you know, one of my favorite things is kind of the after action talk about games. And this is essentially just kind of a broadened application of that, essentially. And yeah, he asked if I would be interested in joining and stayed on since and, you know, Hopefully we'll continue on for the foreseeable future. Definitely. I'm not sensing any burnout every time I listen to episodes. Like you guys always got something to talk about, which is great. <laughs> well, that's good. Healthy, healthy sound. That's awesome. Yeah. It doesn't always feel like it. Sometimes <laughs> there are occasions where it's like, wait, what, what do we talk about this? Week? It ain't even just you, brother. Even on this yeah. show, sometimes <laughs> I'm just like, oh gosh, what are we going to talk about? 
Sure, but I'm very happy with it overall. Have you ever achieved the glory that is Middleist at any of the big events you've gone to? Um, let's see. As in center placement, median placement? Yeah, exactly in the middle. Wait, are Have you ever been a part of the rest or have you always been a part of the best? Well, no, that is de- definitely a man of the people in terms of skill level, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I think that I don't know if it was exactly Middleist. A couple of Krugs ago, I want to say that I probably got, if not Middleist, it was within two places on either side. If not, there was very close. I think it was 2021. Okay, so obviously, you know, you've been around middle, middleist. I'm sure everybody has been at some point. Now, Krug just happened, right? Krug's, I guess you could consider it competitive, even though it's not like specifically an ITS event because of the scenarios and all that and yada yada. This year was very much intended by, uh, by Mark and Eric and Brady, uh, who organized the event. This was much more casual by design, even more than previous years. Previous Krugs, yeah, I would say were much more competitive events. All of the, like the dire states, the four corners events are all fairly large and have some pretty big names that show up to them. The Krug isn't a satellite event, but I think that that's maybe just Mark not applying to be a satellite event. (laughs) Perhaps. I don't know. Maybe he'll elaborate at some point. But yeah, the strength of schedule, as it were, is is very, very strong at these events. And, you know, you'll see people that are a lot of top 10 U.S. players that show up to these sorts of events and things like that, which I am not, just to be clear. <laughs> I'm not on those lists. I don't play enough to, to do that. You know, I certainly have no illusions about being there. I would say upper middle placement is probably much more common for me. Because I think even a few of or at least one person locally, Jello. Does that name ring a bell to you? It sounds familiar. Because I think him and I want to say Ahsoka, I think have like some kind of weird rivalry. Apparently, there, I think there was like some situation where there was a desperado that killed everybody. <laughs> that story does sound familiar. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was Jello. He's so he's a local. Gosh, yeah, yeah. He's a local goofball. We all love him. He's a great guy. Yeah, that's very cool. So you're like, I'm assuming you're like, kind of like you hover around eighth placey kind of positioning. I would say I am commonly in the top third to top quarter of an event. I mean, that's great. Roughly, something like that. I mean, especially with the Shark Tank that is your local area. Because, like, I mean, we over here, we hear about the things that happened out west, right? You know, we, get, <laughs> we get, like, newspapers. Yeah. It's like the Old West, right? Little dime novels. <laughs> you know, you guys, there's, like, heroes out there. Wild Bill Hitchho- Hitchcock and all that stuff. Because <laughs> we have Lobo. Lobo sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I'm assuming he comes out there to you guys, too. I think so. That sounds right. Because, I mean, I, I don't know if we've personally met off the top of my head. It's kind of like I've, I've I also have not. I don't think I've technically like met him. Technically, mm-hmm. I've been around him while he was playing. And while he crushes the souls of the people that he plays against, he's like the nicest <laughs> guy on the planet. Yeah. So at least he's nice about it, right? Sure. Absolutely. You can't you can't take him down if he's if he bought you lunch after he ate you. <laughs> right. Obviously, we're here to talk about getting better. So let me just ask you. So anybody who is not aware, you should be listening to Metachemistry. If you haven't, just stop listening to this. Go straight over there. Download <laughs> that. Just subscribe to it. It's fine with me. Don't worry. I get it. I don't take it personally. But let's just say, <laughs> hypothetically speaking, there's a podcast mm-hmm. host out there somewhere. Let's just say, hypothetically, his dad dropped him on his head a lot when he was younger and Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden he's decided he wants to be better at infinity do you have any general pointers that could really help me help whoever it is i'm talking about (laughs) your your friend quote unquote who lives in canada do you have any that's the one (laughs) so (laughs) with that i would say i mean and it's it's a hard answer right because the way that you improve at any given skill is by practice 
And that's only a semi-actionable. I mean, because the thing is you need to practice with intent. I think that, let's say you're someone who is looking to play at more tournaments, like larger two-day events or the like. Maybe you don't feel particularly confident in doing so, and that's kind of pushed you away until this revelation or until the nth head drop that has precipitated this. I would say that trying to make small changes in your practice will make a big difference. So by that, I mean, try to, let's say you have a particular event in mind, you know what the lineup is, you write a list that you feel confident in handling those missions, keep playing that. Try, and when you iterate, make small iterations. Like when I went to SLS this year, I practiced and got probably seven games with the same list in it. And from when I wrote it, I changed two models to when I went to the event, and I used that as my only list for the whole event. Now, not to say that you need to only use one list. Sometimes it's very relevant, depending on the mission lineup. But trying to focus on specifically what's working and what's not over multiple games if you can get them. And and that can be hard, right? Where you don't always get the luxury of being able to play a lot of games before an event. But that's kind of what the game calls for. You need to put your knowledge into action in order to actually progress in the game or any skill, really. You can study as much as you like, but to actually improve, you need to be using that knowledge and actually apply it. You got to turn your words into deeds, as they say. Right. Yeah, exactly. There are smaller things like if you want to study the game, you know, there's lots of good resources where people give good information. I would say studying unit profiles is very helpful because knowing what your units can do is obviously going to be very important, but just as important, you need to know what your opponents can do. But it's not realistic to memorize every profile in the game. That's just not going to happen. Having a good idea of what's out there can give you a leg up. Do you recommend people try out like anti, I don't want to say anti-meta picks, but like how do you feel about, maybe not right before a big two day, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you're just playing for, you know, giggles or whatever. Do you think Mm -hmm. it's worth taking the time to bring the models that people say historically are bad? I think that it is worth trying things out and experimenting, particularly if you are in a position where there's no stakes. Like you said, you're playing your your regular pickup game of whatever frequency. That's a great time to experiment and try things that you might not expect to do well. And things might surprise you because either they, maybe they're not commonly used because there's a more efficient option. But maybe this option has some extra skills or extra abilities or extra bloat that ends up being something of use to how you like to play the game. And you might not have tried that profile if you listen to kind of the conventional wisdom of the game. So I think that experimentation is very important because that's how you find how you like to play the game, as well as how you find tools that work for your play. I would say that it's hard to find a trooper that does not have some sort of use in the game. I think there are definitely bad profiles, but I think that it is very rare to find bad units. Well, that, that's actually that's that's a very enlightened point. Actually, I had a a short stint with Rama, mm-hmm. and this was before Sunny came out. Because like Rama got a little bit of a buff there because they got a shot in the arm. They got they got Sunny. Uh, yep. The reinforcements. Sunday puts are great. Yeah. We got, yeah. yeah we got Sunny. 
And I remember <laughs> I kept always trying to bring the super soldier guys. The I, I always miss the Kawarish. Is that how you say Kawarish? That's how I imagine it being said. I'm not an expert. <laughs> so, uh, lady and gentlemen, sorry, we are both, in fact, not a Pakistan experts. But they are like on paper. You look at them, and you're just like, I really want these guys to be like better and it's interesting because you're paying the points that you pay for them usually it's like i think it's like that 30 40 ish range yeah low 30s ish for most of them and they don't have i think they would be fixed if they just had like nwi because they're so fragile but it's a good example of like i feel like they got hit with like too much bloat they do have a lot going on way too much it's almost like odalescues right who again i think that's how you say it where it's just they have so many skills you can't possibly get your points back using a model like this well, again, I think the super soldiers are essentially, they're a great chassis, and a few of the profiles are obviously better than others. I think there was the, I think sure. it's the Mark 12 profile, I think it's the one where it's just like, yeah. The MCO, an MSV2, MSV yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, oh, Very gosh, good. That's, you just want it to be good. But yeah. And it just like lets you down in one little way. Uh, but what mm-hmm. happens is, you'll use them once, and you'll have that lucky game streak where you're just, oh my god, I love these guys, mm-hmm. I always want to use them, blah, blah, blah. And then you bring them to an event and you get smashed and it, it kind of feels bad. Sure. And that's an important point to remember because that cuts both ways, right? You can have good or bad luck with a piece. And that's why I say you want to iterate slowly is because you can get to those kind of skewed results where, yeah, this thing did really great. Was it actually the right tool for the job or did I make the best choices with it? Or did I just win a couple face-to-face roles that in reality that are not going to happen terribly often? Or vice versa, where, oh, yes, my heavy infantry, whatever unit got crit, and I lost it on the first order and it failed both saves. Is that really reflective of the unit? Probably not. But it happens all the time. It, it does happen, right? And that's uh, that indeterminacy is what keeps the game interesting. Yeah, it can really skew, particularly because I people in general have a strong negative bias kind of subconsciously where those those instances stand out where positive instances kind of don't by comparison. It actually, and again, kind of speaking to the neurology of what you're getting to, mm-hmm. I think that people also have in a weird basic primal level addicted to gambling. I think that's why we play these sure. in the first place. So I've seen players look at situations where they take the tools that are not right for the job and they're going to attack it and they're just like, it's going to be fine. I'm just going to win the role. <laughs> it's easy. Don't do that. <laughs> Just, any, just roll crits and you win. It's That's easy, right. dude. It's easy. It's easy. <laughs> this game is too easy. It's a baby game. All right, guys. You know, it was kind of good run while we had while it was going, but you know, infinity's over. Just roll crits. Games. Are yeah, over. yeah, yeah. Done. But you. But it's interesting. <laughs> you find yourself in that position where you are the person that's just like, oh, it doesn't really matter what the situation is. I'm just gonna roll four dice and I'll beat him, even though he needs a 19 on one dice and I need tens on four. It's like it's it's not great odds. Sure. Like, do you have any general rules of thumb to weigh what is risk, like what's risk adverse and what's appropriate? So I think that that's kind of dangerous territory in some ways because it's easy because there are really great tools out there that can help like face to face calculator or a toad child on the forums made a dice calculator at one point where you can go and see your exact odds as far as, you know, simulated rolls across, you know, 10,000 roles or what have you. I would say, like, generally speaking, it's much more by intuition because one, you're not going to pull out your phone during and try and run the numbers on every order that you're doing a face to face. But I would say if I feel like I 
am favored. Ideally, I want to be like a two-thirds favored. And that's very, very subjective in the moment uh, because I am not particularly good at math necessarily. And I think that part of it is also weighing your odds versus your other choices. So maybe you don't have an incredible chance of success, but is it your best chance of success with the tools you have available? Or even better, can you avoid this face-to-face role? Is there some other course of action you can take to not have to roll the dice to do that? Can I get, like, sure, there's maybe a dominating ARO piece. Can I obfuscate it with some smoke or eclipse and just get to the objective? Or are we playing a mission where it necessitates me getting rid of that piece? Like if we're playing something like decapitation that cares about army points killed and the like, kind of the, the war games attitude of the only way to win is not to play sometimes holds true here. To answer your original question, I would say that if I feel like I have a better than half chance of success or it's the best option that I have and I don't have a good workaround immediately, then I guess I'm willing to take it in that point. You got to feel bad for Pano players. They don't even get access to smoke. There is that, right? And But, you know, you theoretically have a little bit greater odds in your face-to-face roles because you tend to have generally better troops at gunfighting. Like if you have that bolt sniper with MSV-1 and marksmanship, you know, you've got a good leg up against most things you're going to throw rounds at. And so, and actually, it's funny you say that with the MSV thing. One thing that I think beginning players will always try and do, I, I'm guilty of it myself because I started with Varuna. And I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. as soon as you say Varuna, the, 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 sniper, Kamau. the Kamau sniper comes <laughs> right to mind. Sure. So the interesting thing that I've seen newer players always tend to want to do is they want to do the five-man defensive core standing on a building, Mm -hmm. usually with an MSV sniper. It's either that or a missile of some kind. Do you think that that is a viable way to consistently get higher placements in events? I think that that is entirely dependent on the mission setup. Because if you're playing Panic Room, no, it is not. Like You need to have something mobile. Now, a fire team can help you with that because you have the order efficiency of being able to move a large chunk of your force, but you don't necessarily want them in those shorter range bands. I would say that it is it is a useful tool available, and it's very generally easy to implement. Like It's, it's not the easiest necessarily because you have to worry about the placement of five models. You have to have a, somewhere where you can deploy them where they're trying to only engage at their effective range bands. Generally speaking, once you deploy it, the idea is that you don't really need to activate it if you're building a defensive core in the manner that you're describing. I think it can be helpful, but it's also common enough that you're going to need to expect that someone is going to have a plan to take that apart. If you have, say, your MSV2 sniper or a similar unit, well, I'm going to have my burst 5 tag with a HRMC try and blow it off the table, or... I'm just going to throw Eclipse and not bother with you because you're obviously not going to come to me. And if you do, I'm going to shred you in short ranges. This is a very like specific question because I've noticed mm-hmm. that this was something I had insane levels of difficulty dealing with. We have a local mm-hmm. player. We love him. His name's Mike. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen him in like, oh, probably about as long a time as, <laughs> as your own beloved Andrew. Yeah. He is a Caledonian player. Now, whenever you play against Ariadna, you got to deal with dogs. You got to deal with things that move super fast. And essentially, when you go up against factions who can really exploit null deploy tactics Mm -hmm. that are so common, right? Because if you don't have 
your mm-hmm. solid ARO pieces. And even if you have the ARO pieces, a lot of times people just lay them down on top of a roof or whatever. It's a tricky balance for sure. How do you know? How do you personally know? Because it took me forever mm-hmm. to even remotely get anywhere where I could def- even somewhat defend myself against it. Sure. What is your rule of thumb when you see, oh, the other person has a climbing plus six two movement model or a bike or whatever that's really going to aggressively dismantle your models because you null deployed? So I think that because null deploying is semi-common, like you had mentioned, like that's become a more oft-used deployment method, it's kind of come into conventional wisdom to run tools that exploit that, whether that be guided missiles or motorcycle units or just airborne deployment units or other things that can get to their location in a relatively few number of orders. So I think that you do yourself a disservice if you do null deploy. I think you need some ARO presence because either you're going to have some sort of sweeper tool like that come and cause a significant amount of damage because you're also limiting where you can deploy if you're deploying in that capacity. Like if you're making sure that you're not anywhere that's visible from the halfway point of the board back, then you have to cluster to some extent depending on your terrain. So when things do hit you, they're going to start hitting you hard. Like a, a roadbot is a really good tool for that sort of thing with a triple burst template. I think you need some arrows. But the idea is that take lanes, not towers, because if you can kind of cut off angles of approach, that will spend orders from your opponent. And ultimately, that's the idea of ARO's. Don't plan to kill things in ARO, though it will happen, but you can't plan for that. You can only plan for it to delay your opponent. And that's the ideal. Well, I guess the ideal is killing models, but the best you should be hoping for is to delay. But if you post on a tower or on top of a building with expansive line of sight lanes, if your opponent has reasonable tools, they're going to just take some apex gunfighter and knock your ARO down. Because the more you can see, the easier it is for your opponent to bring their most effective tool to bear against whatever you have. I would try and post ARO's, but try and cut off lanes of approach instead of taking the kind of quintessential sniper tower, unless you already see their deployment, you already can tell that they don't have as much long-range firepower, it's definitely going to set them on the back foot, or you can see that their list is relying on smoke and you have that Atalanta-esque sniper that doesn't care about that. Sure, there are circumstances where that can be helpful, but generally speaking, without knowing those things in advance, lanes, not towers. And if you are playing against somebody playing Caledonia or... Even Cosmo, or and again Vanilla Ariadna, that reserve model is—it's very potentially Uxia. So if you do have an ARO piece, sure. uh, it's probably going to die <laughs> to a shotgun. It very well turn. could. Yeah. So obviously, that's one of those situations where knowledge of the opponent's army definitely very helpful. But uh, absolutely, I will say the most difficulty I had when I came back to play was 100% what you were getting at, where it's. The difference between a soft and a hard ARO, mm-hmm. what is the difference, right? That's the first question you have to answer. And then how do you implement them in such a way where, again, you're not going to win the... I just assume you're not going to win the ARO face-off. That's, it's safe to just... To, to be more effective mm-hmm. at having a proper ARO presence, just know that you're going to lose. Pray that you don't die. It's kind of my rule. Yeah, plan for that. And anything better is just gravy. And so my general rule of thumb, whenever I set up ARO... 
is you want to make, I have at least one or two things always sitting up, right? Now, Ariana mm-hmm. makes it a little more difficult because I got TR. So my usual ARO presence is going to be midfield stuff that has like mine layer, right? That stuff's classic. Sure. Good old soft arrows like mines and whatever, you know, jammers if you have access to them. Absolutely. And then I use flash pull spots to essentially do exactly what you're saying. Block those mm-hmm. lanes. But if you put it on top of a building, it's probably going to die. Right. Now, what do you think about, there's the whole like fort. This is, again, this is kind of very specific, but I figure, you know, what you're talking about. These sure. Yeah. Situations. Absolutely. There's the like the fort kick ass concept, which I'm sure mm-hmm. we, you're aware of, right? We kind of talked about it before. So what sure. do you think about seeding? Again, this is all very scenario dependent, of course. Mm-hmm. What do you think about seeding deployment zone? And instead of making a fort kick ass, you make like county kick ass, which is what essentially what I learned playing against Caledonia as much as I was, right? It's like a weird, like specific set of data points, me playing against Caledonia so much, where it was essentially, I would just not deploy in half of my deployment zone and everybody Mm -hmm. would be kind of more, I don't want to say clustered, but we'd be more like concentrated in one half. And it Mm -hmm. made the the dog's approach so much significantly harder. Sure. I would say that it's highly terrain dependent, of course, because if you, the more condensed you are, those kind of super warband units like Cameronians or McMurrow and the like, they can really take advantage of that with multiple large templates. So you have to kind of be careful and make sure that you can avoid losing more than a couple models if you can. I think that that can be helpful in deeper deployments, as in you were deploying closer to your table edge than the edge of your deployment zone. That can certainly help because that inherently requires more orders to get to you unless you're Jurok. That also kind of introduces the concept of layers, like which you had already kind of alluded to with, here's my midfield mine layers. I have a mine, I have a shotgun or similar where I can, you know, throw some throw some templates and at least elicit some consideration from whatever's coming to attack. And then you have some of your long range units, like your flash bots or your TR bots or your snipers and missile launchers that are kind of holding wider lanes. And then back in your deployment zone, ideally you want things to be able to see each other when you're deploying in that kind of method that you described, because you you want to make sure that there is a cost associated with attacking any of your models. The more cost you can require of your opponent, the more, one, they'll either be a little bit more timid in some cases where they're going to spend more orders to try and reduce their risk, or they're going to just try and, you know, launch it at you, in which case you're more likely to knock out that unit. They may do more damage, but at least you will end the assault. So like I think of an Uberfall commando where, okay, a lot of players will just kind of beeline towards some flank and start eliminating things. And maybe they'll expose the Chimera, but if they don't, they're usually spending more orders to try and climb over buildings or try and circle around and otherwise just preserve the unit as much as possible. And that again, helps because you're delaying. You are forcing them to expend more orders because, oh, well, I don't want to go attack this piece, but because then these two other units will see me, they'll probably drop the Chimera, I'll lose the unit. I don't know if that quite uh, answers the question. No, it definitely definitely answers the question. What I'm essentially alluding to is that if you want to step up your game, the thing I've noticed that helps new people the most to get to the the next level, to the middlest level, right? From the beginning to more middle is... You have to understand your how to ARO. If you don't, sure. you're just not going to do well. 
And the point that we're getting to is that it really is not about killing. You just got to get that out of your mind. It really is mm-hmm. just about efficiency at that point. Right. Because AROs are important because you can't you can't post everything up because your opponent will just pick everything apart. And you can't avoid posting anything because something will die of your DZ and just start shredding you. You have to find a balance, and that is both in-list building and deployment slash your terrain. So there's not really a one-size-fits-all answer for this sort of thing. It will vary from faction to faction, uh, what tools you have available, how much space you have to deploy, what sort of sight lanes there are. So, And that's one of the things that makes Infinity both very rewarding but also very challenging is that there's just a tremendous number of variables associated with the game and that of course leads into my next question if you have somebody who's trying to get into the game or they've been playing for a bit they really can't unlock that next step you know Mm -hmm. is there a particular army that you would recommend they try and play that might be more conducive to like learning that this very specific lesson i would say that I i would say that i typically encourage people to play with units that they if you're coming from a brand new perspective where you aren't familiar with the game, I would generally try and pick the things that look most interesting to you, which is you know, kind of a, a cop-out answer, so I'll, I'll dive further. Generally, I think that that is helpful in a miniatures game because that's what makes this different from a video game or other outlet is kind of the investiture you put in your models, whether that is paint or naming your dudes or whatever it happens to be. Maybe you just like how the scopes of certain things and you know you don't ever do any hobbying that's fine too that's where the kind of the attachment comes in and where the kind of interest stays so if you're playing with things you don't really care to have on the table i think that that will cause many players to lose interest let's say someone says that they love all of the various aesthetics available so to get to kind of a a more real answer i would say something like probably like vanilla 012 i think is a good example because they have a wide array of tools but they're also one of the smaller vanilla factions available. Personally, I think sectorials are more approachable for new players. I know some people will say that vanilla is more approachable so you don't crutch on sectorials or what have you, or on fire teams rather. But I think sectorials are helpful because they are succinct, because there is a very finite group of choices, and there is kind of a usually one or maybe a couple playstyles associated with that faction. So I think they're much easier to parse. But for Vanilla 012, they're not as expansive, uh, at least as of yet. And they have a little bit of everything. You can do a pretty competent hacking list. You can fight with really interesting gunfighters. You have durable units. You have cool skirmisher units. You have some warbands. You have some interesting characters that bring unique kits. So I think something along those lines would be useful because you have access to most tools in the game. And so you can kind of experiment through those things as you kind of journey throughout. Other factions are certainly serviceable for that, but I think that O12 is probably one of the easier ones in that respect. I could probably see a case for for nomads, maybe. No, but nomads are a very large faction, so I would probably say like, Corregidor has a pretty wide array of tools, for example. So yeah, I would say that generally I'd recommend something that is broad in its tool set. So that way you can kind of experiment and see what you like about the game. Definitely having the ability to experiment with like different play mm-hmm. styles and alone. And I, I'm going to say shame on you, Devin. You didn't. You talked about Vanilla <laughs> 012 and you didn't even mention the king of chunk himself. The, game. the Gamma? 
<laughs> I love the Gamma. The Gamma is one of the gunfighters I, I, that came to my mind anyway. You see, to gunfight, though, you have to move. Gamma don't move. He stand and he'd be chonky. <laughs> if you no play gamma. double Gamma with Parvati, you can do both. <laughs> yeah, yeah let's that was say, a fun I, game. I tried that list. Gosh, it is. It's sad when one of them dies because it feels like it's literally yeah. a little tag. He's just a little tiny yeah. tag. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, the point of that was it was very succinct. The only thing that I think O12 vanilla la- and to elaborate on your point, to me, mm-hmm. vanilla O12 kind of feels like a sectorial in a lot of ways. You just don't get fire teams. Well, I kind you kind of do now with reinforcements, but that's a whole other point. Sure. Discussion. <laughs> right. The interesting thing with vanilla O12 as opposed to Starmada is that when vanilla O12 came out, they kind of came out like right before sectorial specific profiles started becoming at least a lot more common because now in Starmada, sure, yeah. they have the Sharko, but they don't have that yep. vanilla. And, and so the Secudroid, yeah. And, and the Secudroid's amazing. Yeah, they're both amazing profiles. Yep. <laughs> and so the, the one issue that I think you bump into with vanilla O12 is that you do not have a camo state midfield because the gangbuster doesn't have sure. camo state unless you do impersonator, but you know, you actually can't be going second, right? Racers uh, can kind of fill that role, but they're more expensive. Right, 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 right. But I mean, Sharkos are just super cheap and just really, really effective. When he point, like, how <laughs> did that go over one of the to CB's desk? And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is fine. This is cool. And the robot. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So we're both O12 players here. I know I play it more than anything else. And I know you mm-hmm. like them. So, yeah. Yeah, this is good. This is an O12 episode of. Uh, there we go. so anyway yeah to start wrapping up what do you what do you think is the hardest part of the game personally that's an interesting question because it's one it's very subjective of course i mean i guess you're asking me but i would say that there's kind of a couple stages where if you are if you're early on in your infinity experience i think that one of the more challenging things is being able to persevere through defeat. It's a very deep and a very challenging game, and skill discrepancies become very apparent when you're playing. So when you're starting out, you kind of have to expect to lose a lot. When I started playing with Infinity, I had one opponent, and he was pretty good at the game, and I did not win a single game for about a year. I got slapped around for a very long time. Not that that's everyone's experience. When you get that win, though, or even the draw, you know what? Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know what? As soon as you're playing in the first time that person you're playing against, it's like, hmm, how should when they have to like actually stop and think about how they're yep. going to do what they do. That is the first step where you're like, oh, oh, I got <laughs> something. I'm on to something now. <laughs> I have you now. So I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, so good. The dopamine hit when you get that first win. Oh, man, they don't they mm-hmm. need to put that in a bottle. <laughs> right. Gosh, yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, so I think that that's kind of the first stage is being able to find enjoyment in the game without winning. And I think that's healthy for any game that you play at any level. I think that enjoying winning is fine, but it cannot be your only source of enjoyment because that means that generally speaking, you will not have a good time at least half of the time. That's just not good for anybody. The second stage I would say would be the next hardest thing is once you've kind of gotten past that point, developing a broad set of knowledge, both about what your units can do and what your opponents can do, and generally the kind of more nuanced portions of the game, the kind of implied interactions, the rules that when they come together you know, 
do weird things that you might not expect. Trying to fight through that, and that can be very difficult when you're kind of intermediate at the game. To kind of move past that, the last kind of step that I find difficult and, you know, I still deal with all the time, minimizing mistakes. Being able to recognize when you are doing something that is not your best option, being stubborn in a face-to-face role where you've spent two orders on it, but that thing should have died already, so I'm going to keep doing it until it is, and I spent, you know, half my turn doing this. You probably shouldn't have. Yeah, I'd say kind of the last step or hardest part is knowing when you're making mistakes, knowing how to avoid those in the future, and basically just kind of tightening up your general play. And I will say something that therapists say a lot, and I I promise this Mm -hmm. is uh, relevant. Something that therapists (laughs) say... When they ask you, hey, who do you have the longest like relationship with on the entire planet, right? And you're over the course of your entire life, who do you spend the most time around? Yourself. So sure. if you're you have the longest conversations with yourself. So after games, if the first thing you say to yourself is, Oh, I'm stupid and I lost because I'm bad, would you say that to another new player? Probably not. Exactly. So what you need to do is, like you're saying, with the resiliency thing is the first mm-hmm. thing you need to realize is that you're learning to play this game just like everybody else is. I bet even the people at the top of this, you know, collapsing ladder or whatever it is that we're all gripping onto <laughs> as we go into ITS 15. Yeah. We're all playing the same game. We're all learning the same things. We're all suffering the same mishaps and yada, yada that you are. You just happen to be a little bit newer at it. <laughs> right. And, and just to kind of emphasize your point, that last step about minimizing mistakes is very intentional. I, I don't believe in a perfect game of infinity. You're not going to play any game without any mistakes. The idea is to get better. And to me, that's kind of the core of playing competitively. I know there's kind of a, a negative stigma against that word sometimes where you know you picture someone who is trying to do whatever it takes to win and aren't really concerned with how the other person is at the game table and are just kind of laser focused on that. But I feel like playing competitively is about testing your skill and improving game over game, not necessarily crushing everyone before you and hearing the lamentations of their women. Because there's a reason there's the defensive bonus in the scoring. Honestly, if if I'm going to lose the game, if I get the defensive bonus, that's my own personal win right there. Yeah. Yeah, that's the sign of a good game, because especially with so much mutually exclusive scoring in a lot of missions, that's very difficult to do sometimes. In in some missions, it's just impossible, unfortunately. And I will say that I wrote a whole like blog article on this, if you check out the PCN's blog area, but mm-hmm. essentially it's all about like goal setting. And sure. whenever you go to any event, if your goal is to win first place, but you've only played like five games of the, whatever system you're doing, <laughs> it's probably not a great goal. <laughs> you probably need to. Sure. So if your goal is, right. hey, when I show up at every game, as long as I get defensive bonus or whatever, which is essentially it's just your mm-hmm. objective points and their objective points very close, you mm-hmm. get a point for that. That goes towards your standing. That could be that could be how you win, right? So Absolutely. if you manage to do that in every single thing, whenever they announce whoever the real winner is, you just walk up and say, no, I was the actual winner here. And then you grab your prize <laughs> off of the table. That's how this works. That's right. You just shove them aside. Excuse me. Yeah, it's like, what are you doing? I'm the one that I got defensive bonus three times, okay? Did you get any defensive bonuses? No, you went 5 0s. You couldn't have. Look at me. I crushed everybody I played against. I'm so cool. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, the one thing that you did, that's actually, I never really thought of putting it so succinctly. That was actually kind of brilliant is that 
as opposed to learning hard skills on how to play, I do mm-hmm. think that being able to talk yourself and just improving yourself as, I guess, kind of like as a person is probably the first sure. thing that you need to master before you can really get to that next step, that next level. Yeah, I mean, there is certainly at least partially a mindset associated with that because if you are very defeatist, and again, feeding into that negative bias we talked about earlier, it's difficult to find how to improve if you feel like just everything sucks. And, oh, I just got diced off the table all game. Did you? Or did you make some mistakes? Did you provide opportunities to come back into the game? You know, did you deploy units in a way where, you know, you could have done better. Yeah, I totally feel that trying to <laughs> trying to play the game in a, a level-headed manner is very important, both for your play and for your and your enjoyment, your opponent's enjoyment of the game. Because if I'm I'm sure that you've also played with people who were having a bad time across the table and, you know, they're tossing their dice around or or what have you. And, you know, that's not fun either. And ultimately we're playing a game this is something that is supposed to be for enjoyment even though you know maybe we're testing skills and we're trying to improve but the idea is that this should be recreational to some extent at least so Devin, here we are at the end this is the question that i've essentially been told that i'm not allowed to ask silly questions uh, throughout like the whole last chunk of the episode due to some very constructive feedback that i love to hear uh, okay. actually, I, I say that very friendly i really was appreciative that i got it but i am going to ask you a very important question <laughs> Okay. Just to prove that Arachne is, in fact, the greatest competitive mm-hmm. podcast that there is, what's your favorite hot wing sauce? There is a local place called CD's Wings uh, that I enjoy going to. It's their house sauce. So it's kind of a mixture of extra hot buffalo, some sort of spicy barbecue, and I think some ranch in some special mixture altogether that is my favorite. So, yeah. <laughs> that sounds- Does that help? That's- that sounds like it'd be really bad for me. It is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds but del- those two things those two things don't necessarily coincide. No, not usually not. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Devin. Devin, I think we did it. I think we did an episode. I'm hoping that somebody gets something out of this. I do think that this is definitely an episode where I think knowing that if when I was coming back to the game as of, you know, I guess semi recently, this is the kind of things that Mm -hmm. I probably needed to hear to kind of sum up everything that we just talked about. It's definitely it's all about you, right? You you've got to become better at the game just by essentially improving yourself, right? Resiliency is key. And I will say ARO presence and what is a soft and what is a hard ARO great things to learn. Maybe we'll go over that in another episode in the future, lady and gentlemen. But just know that ARO is not about killing. It is purely about just being a pain in the butt. Yeah. Essentially. Absolutely. Guys, hear me out. Give me five star reviews, please. This is a great show. I got I have Dev. He has lent me a level of legitimacy that I don't think I could have done. And the only thing that's doing it is I sent him a blank check. Listen, he puts in whatever he wants there. Boom. He made the show better just by being here. And you know what? I think whatever he writes down, it's probably worth it. I, th- I think so. And it's a, it's a tax write-off. Ooh, I know if tax write-off. Who loves that? I didn't know I oh. had enough legitimacy to spare. Listen, the <laughs> IRS doesn't need to know the specifics. It's fine. Nobody cares. It's, everything's fine. <laughs> so, guys, five-star reviews. I'm sure Devin can also agree with me on this. Five-star reviews, very, very important. It gets us out there, grows the community. I've had multiple people reach out to me saying that they got back into the game because they listened to Arachne. That's an amazing thing to hear, Devin. I'm sure you've heard yeah. very similar. Yeah, it's awesome because it's very easy uh, as a podcaster in this capacity to kind of 
feel like you're just kind of uh, throwing your thoughts into the void. So hearing back, uh, whether that be reviews or reaching out personally on Discord or some other outlet is is really important and is very motivating. And so if you like the content here, you know, definitely please give those reviews, give those shout outs, because uh, that, that means a lot, both for, you know, internet algorithm pers- uh, reasons and for, you know, just personal motivation sometimes. Honestly, yeah, I do agree. Sometimes you just feel like you're yelling into the void, you know, you know angry grognard yelling at a cloud type type situation (laughs) so guys you can find me i'm dr d you can find me on discord at dr d or you can send me an email at furypainting at gmail.com where can they find you Devin? so uh you can find us on spotify as metachemistry we also have our patreon page is patreon.com slash metachemistry and we have an rss link that will go into whatever podcast app you like to use um, so those are the best places to find us. We also have our Discord page, uh, our Discord server, rather. So you can stop by there, and I'm I'm happy to chat with anybody. If you guys have follow-up questions or anything along those lines, like, yeah, I'm definitely around for those sorts of things. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, uh, Mythic Emporium Games. Uh, if, you know, what's <laughs> better than uh, uh, some games is, is Mo Games. That's right. Did I do that right? I think that's good enough. That's good enough to fulfill our requirement. We're good. <laughs> oh, sweet. Yeah, that blank yes. check. Oh, yeah, it's working all out. They sent, dude, they sent me a blank check. I sent you a blank check. It's going to be great. Yeah, it works out. Yeah. You know, again, IRS doesn't need to know nothing. So thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks for listening, Nomads. Make sure you keep it popping out there and don't let Aleph get you. Or do, because Aleph loves you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, check out all the other great shows here at the Professional Casual Network. Like what, Danny? I'll tell you. On Mondays, we've got the Lost Omens podcast, our Pathfinder 2E actual play, hosted by me, playing through the Extinction Curse AP. Also, streaming on twitch.tv slash professional casual network at 7 p.m. Eastern time, you can check out, oh yeah, the power phase, our Marvel Crisis Protocol live battle report show. On Tuesdays, the podcast version of, wait, did I roll a wild? Our Marvel Crisis Protocol Povlog is available. On Wednesdays, alternating releases on the Patreon, we have Settling the Southlands, our homebrew Wolforp actual play, and The Slithering, a Pathfinder 2nd edition actual play. And on Thursdays, live at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on twitch.tv slash professional casual network, we've got, wait, did I roll a wild, our Marvel Crisis Protocol povlog. You can also check out back episodes of Elite Eight Showdown and the first 39 episodes of the Lost Omens podcast, the first 24 episodes of Settling the Southlands, and the first handful of episodes of The Slithering on the YouTube at youtube.com slash the professional casual.